Welcome everyone to The Mend, a podcast to learn about services and support for victims and survivors of crime, sponsored through the Center for Crime Victim Services here in Vermont. I'm your host, Anna Nassett, and today on the show, we have Dylan Graves, Barbetta Comstock, here to discuss male queer polyvictimization and the survivorship journey. Thank you for being here, Dylan. Thank you so much for having me, Anna. Uh, really honored to be here. Thank you. Very excited to have you here. Um, as our listeners know or may not know, if you're a new listener, the show was created to take a deeper look at services, organizations, and concepts for victims and survivors of crime. We want to acknowledge the healing process and provide resources, not only in our state of Vermont, but throughout the country, that could benefit victims and survivors of crime as they begin to mend. And today we are going to be looking at some of those concepts. This is a show where we can all learn, myself included. We might not always agree with everything we hear, but that's how we learn, and I invite you to participate in doing that with me. I always like to begin with a content warning. Our goal is to create a safe place to discuss topics of healing, but with that in mind, we may occasionally hear a story or language related to crime, discuss our mental health, or have other sensitive subject matter. We urge you to take care of yourself and listen at your own discretion. I'd love to share a little bit about Dylan before we get into our conversation. Dylan is a grateful individual, artist, and proud husband. He loves his cats, running, and caring for plants. He is also a polyvictimization turned advocate, a public speaker, and creative director of Holiday Graves Media, a multimedia production company he founded that specializes in trauma-informed media production. Dylan's creative and professional work during his career has been informed by his understanding of otherness since the age of three. As a queer kid growing up in rural Virginia, Dylan started making experimental art videos in a barn at the age of 13. Surviving childhood sexual abuse and child sex trafficking, child drug endangerment, drunk driving, sexual assault, adult rape, meth addiction, and multiple suicide attempts galvanized his drive to create meaningful media. He chose to leverage art, lived experience, and education in service of advocacy. Over the last 24 years, he's been producing media, and the last 10 has been working with the U.S. Department of Justice Office for Victims of Crime, with which he has created over 70 featuring videos, videos featuring survivors of crime, those who serve them, and best practices. Other past clients include Penn State's College of Nursing Sexual Assault, Sexual Assault Forensic Examination Telehealth Center, Network for Victim Recovery of D.C., National Education Association, American Federation of Teachers, the Advancement Project, and the DNC. He graduated with high distinction from the University of Virginia, having authored a narrative review of literature, which analyzed predictors, correlates, and sequelae, sorry, <laughs> of childhood sexual abuse of non-heterosexual male use, blending queer anthropology, psychology, and social justice. Dylan applies biocycles social frame to dismantling endemic problems, which have long been demanded as terms of survival. Dylan is also very smart with a lot of big words. <laughs> Dylan is currently a subject matter expert on childhood sexual victimization for the zero abuse survivor space. At this time, he is authoring a long form research-based article addressing the nexus of historio and sociocultural influences leading to disappropriate sexual violence experienced by gay male community. Dylan has prepared his whole life for this conversation and is so happy to be here. Dylan, thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you. And I apologize for the words that I just completely butchered. It's okay. <laughs> okay. You have a very profound vocabulary, so <laughs> I might have to ask you occasionally to explain something for myself and our listeners. Um, yeah. I had the delight of meeting Dylan last year, actually here in my apartment, which is pretty rare because I call my house the bunkers. I don't usually have guests. But Dylan came here um, to work with me on a project for National Crime Victims Rights Week, which was sponsored by the Office for Victims of Crime. And we created a video together um, over the course of a day and just immediately bonded. And it's been really cool to see your journey over the last year and get to know you better. And I'm so stoked to have you here today. So stoked that we got the chance to meet, and uh, I think the powers that be that we were able to, and I'm uh, very excited for the conversation that we're going to be having today. Well, thank you. So welcome. Um, do you want to share, I mean, I just did a huge bio there, but could you share a little bit more about yourself and how you felt led to this work? Sure. Well, thank you. So um, I'd like to start by setting some context, and I think that a lot of it has to do with the variety of othering experiences that I had in my youth um, that really demanded explanation. And so I was confronted with a number of othering experiences younger in my life early on. I was first sexually assaulted when I was three. I was not believed afterwards. Uh, I grew up in a home with a lot of pressure. I was put in a coma and a body cast at the age of eight as the result of a drunk driver's choice. My cross-country coach died of a heart attack in front of me at the age of 14, and his last gasp for air were actually in my hands as I rendered CPR. That same year, I was raped multiple times, and from 16 to 18, I was being sexually exploited. Video was, and I discovered it to be, a profound device for deciphering otherness. It afforded expression to that which was beyond words. Um, as a boy whose othering experiences occurred largely within a wordless space, nuance was at the center of, of what I wanted to understand and express. Um, emerging into my identity as a still legal to discriminate against sexual minority um, who had been sexually victimized further complicated how I regarded myself. I felt I was a crime. Uh, I sought clarity. So when you asked me about this work, it really started with video. Uh, and I think it was through video that I began to understand my identity better. Um, my interest in art, identity, and alienation within the context of a fractured society drew me to the likes of Albert Camus and Bertolt Brecht as I was trying to make sense of ways in which I could express what I was feeling. I was academically inclined and artistically driven. When I was 19, I was interning in Los Angeles at Paramount Pictures uh, with MTV Films. It's a really, really great, great summer, except for that summer I was forcibly raped. And uh, after that, I, I turned away from video, um, I, I, not permanently and not entirely, but I, I was really drawn to research at that point. Um, you know, I'd noted I'd always been interested in kind of learning, but what interested me in research was that it really provided a means for understanding my experiences and in a sense, gaining control over the meaning. So um, 
you know, as you mentioned, I was working on this honors thesis at the University of Virginia, and that really kind of helped me begin to understand the layers of framework that came to bear on what was a fairly unique experience of childhood sexual abuse when regarded through the frame of non-heterosexuality. And I want to mention that when I use the term non-heterosexuality, it's because oftentimes when we're looking at the issue of sexual abuse of gay or bisexual boys, it's not always with the cognizance on behalf of the youth that that is what they are. But these awarenesses um, precede our capacity to understand them, especially if our identity has been um, illegal and criminalized. So um, there's a lot of a lot of tension that exists within that. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Um, but I really wanted to use this research. And so my research for the thesis I discovered um, expl explained a lot of what I was experiencing. And that is that um, we, uniquely as a function of marginalized gen identity, gender socialization, and age, those three came together to really tell um, my story better. I was particularly understanding and under um, <clears throat> excuse me, what I realized is that the emergence of otherness paralleled sexual maturation and emergence into adolescence and adulthood. And so taking together the mysteries of puberty hormones that drove vulnerability. So what I realized is that I could use research to help make sense of my story. Uh, and I use that eventually as a way to turn back to video. Um, so something I want to back up and just kind of lay, lay some groundwork because this talks about the research I did, but it also has a lot to do with the work that I seek to do now. And that is that I speak from the perspective of an individual who was coming to terms with their gay identity 25 some years after the Stonewall riots occurred. And that was really what kind of pushed forward the first public understanding of fighting for gay rights in, in popular culture. And okay. so... Um, I was coming out at the height of HIV AIDS. I was becoming aware of my non-heterosexual um, identity at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic. And so you can imagine that for me, uh, these observations are kind of coming midstream. They're those before me who suffered the same, and they're those who come after me who will know the residue of what I've experienced and some continue to experience. And so that's why I think this is still an important conversation to be had. I think that a lot of the societal forces that we're encountering now are moving towards the recriminalization, obviously, of queer and trans individuals. Um, and I, I speak from this perspective from mine. I can't speak for everyone. Um, I, I, I do research to help understand broader experiences, but I, again, am speaking from my perspective. Um, and so if you're gay and victimized sexually, it's easy to believe that you were victimized because you were gay and that you deserved it. And additionally, the same societal pressures that afford the circumstances such as those have historically denied men as victims and that they should be able to defend themselves. And so non-heterosexual male youths are particularly susceptible for perceived responsibility of their abuse, which becomes a risk factor for future victimization, social isolation, uh, suicidality, and addiction. Indeed, the painful nature of coming to terms with this led me to cocaine addiction as I was finishing my honors thesis, and that led to meth addiction. And you know, after my second suicide attempt, I was institutionalized, and then I went to rehab where I detoxed from meth, and that was 2010. Um, as I put my life back together, I had the opportunity to do photo work uh, within DC, and that turned into video work, which was in the tens, which is right when we were on the edge of gay marriage equality or marriage equality. And so video then turned into a form of advocacy again. And um, 
nine years after I used math last, um, I started my company, Holiday Graves Media. Amazing. That is quite the journey you just shared with all of our listeners. Thank you. I, I feel like every part of my journey has in some way led to a greater understanding of this issue that I've been trying to unpack for my whole life, which is why did I experience what I experienced? Why did it play out the way it played out? And moreover, why do I see this problem or this unfortunate occurrence so commonly within the gay community? And there are a lot of factors impacting the fact that gay men uh, gay boys remain vulnerable. And, and part of that stems back to the HIV AIDS crisis that's really effectively removed two generations of role models that would have otherwise been there to role model healthy behavior. And we also have to consider how the HIV AIDS epidemic impacted the gay community in terms of conceptions of health, sexuality, and relevance. And I think that that is something that we really need to take a long, hard look at if we're to unpack the reasons why we uh, continue to find ourselves stymied by an aspect of our identity, which should be celebrated, but which has mm -hmm. been turned as a tool against us. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think you and I are relatively the same age. And so growing up as a, you know, had a heterosexual youth, like, I mean, you were just told like, you know, I also grew up very religious. So you were just being shoved into that, you know, gay is wrong. Like anybody with AIDS deserves it. All of those things. And, and I think you made a really, really good point about the fact that so many of your role models were just erased and not celebrated, villainized, um, all of these things. And that is a really challenging place to come to terms with your identity when you're looking at that as the lens. Um, you know, you said that you continue to put everything together, um, and piece together like why did these things happen and i know i personally struggle with that too and i will never have an answer to it because it's life right and i can go like okay well this started at three and then this thing happened and i can map it all out and how do you or are you able to let go of the why and come more into the place of the healing journey or is the why part of the healing journey the why has absolutely been part of the healing journey because why, when you start to unpack it, takes away some of the power that you felt, or at least you didn't have. It gives you a sense of understanding and it makes you feel like you're less responsible. I mean, um, most gay individuals, um, they are already aware of the fact that their identity has been marginalized and they've internalized homophobia. They've they've absorbed these messages. I remember when I woke up from my coma, when I was eight, I thought I saw myself in traction. My femur was broken before they put me in my body cast, right? And I looked, I said, oh, this is what happens to gay boys. You deserve this, Dylan. This is what God does to gay boys. I had I had absorbed that. Um, and it's and that's even though when you realize that's really rather stupid, kind of silly, maybe <laughs> that. That doesn't really make much sense, but that still sticks with you. That's hard to shake. Um, Absolutely. And so for me, that's why research was so important. And that's why for me, video went from being something that I was making videos of me blowing up gingerbread houses when I was 13 to realizing that video actually afforded 
effective storytelling that could lend sense, not just to my experience, but also give others a platform for understanding. And that's when I really began to understand that video was not just a tool of documentary. It was a tool for connection. It was a tool for the opportunity to uh, collect insight and share it with one another. And I thought that was really cool. Um, and so yeah. for me, understanding these things has been a part of taking away some of the power I felt they wielded over me. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, it's interesting, like, obviously we connected over video and um, working with you. I was so nervous. I mean, I'd never done anything like that. Right. And I just immediately felt at ease and because it was very nervous to be like, I have three people coming into my home that I don't know. They're recording me like this is really like very nerve wracking. And you had the ability to immediately put me at ease. But I do want to come back to your, you mentioned earlier when you were 19 and you were working with Paramount out in LA, having that sexual assault happen and then stepping away from video. And, mm -hmm. you know, I feel like that's something that so many of us do, right? Like for me, you know, there's many forms of gender-based violence I've experienced in my lifetime also as a poly victim, but the the stalking and having that happen at my gallery, I walked away from anything artistic for a very, very long time. Um, in fact, I'm slowly coming back into it, but even that's really challenging at times. So how has that been to come back into that art form or how was it to come back into that art form after having stepped away because of that painful experience? So there's a caveat I got to put that, thank you. I appreciate you having shared that. I can feel that we share that as well. And I remember our conversation when we were in, uh, before we started rolling camera about when I engage with art, I sometimes feel scared because that if I touch the flame of art, I'll come undone. Mm -hmm. And for me, <clears throat> while video started as art, you know, eventually it became something that was more. Um, I was able to come back to video as a form of documentary, as a form of sense-making. I've, I've still struggled with coming back to art because art is different in, in a sense in that it is um, visceral in a way that issue-based video is not. Mm -hmm. And so I had to step away from video following uh, my rape in Los Angeles. Out of unprocessed trauma, I think out of just an intuition that um, I had to find a way to make sense of my life differently. And it's been great to find myself to step back into art in my life now currently, yes, but also to be able to step back into really powerful video production that does leverage an artistic lens so that you can be more empathetic because really... I hope to not just make ethical films. I hope to make trauma-informed media. And, and that really does, I think, benefit from having an artistic lens that does communicate uniquely in a form where nothing really else can. Art, art can transmit truth, unlike other things can. And so it's been a really beautiful um, reconciliation of both functional video, but also art uh, to help advance really... Um, confounding, well, not advanced, but to help advance awareness surrounding very confounding, uh, vexing social issues. So it's been very gratifying, but it's taken a lot to get there. Mm -hmm. I hear you. It does take a lot to get back to that. And there is something for myself, almost scary of like, what will, what will I discover or what will be 
revealed or I mean I do a lot of work with fiber so it's like what am what am I unwinding or what am I nodding up whatever it might be and yeah it's scary to go back into that place but it's really profound and it's really beautiful and it's something that I know I'm glad I'm stepping back into one little toe at a time but getting there and I'm so glad you are too thank you yes yes so can I ask you um what are some of the tools that you are using for healing what are some of the other things that you're bringing into your life or that you utilize for the part of your healing journey? Um, so something that I've found time and time again, when people have asked me questions like this is I almost, I'm not sure what to say. And it's not because I don't have things that I've used in my healing journey, but it's also, it often comes in the way of saying like, Oh, you know, who was your support system or what was it that you discovered? And for me, video was a very organic development as a tool therapy. It was something that I identified and I eventually kind of developed for myself. And that's because it speaks to the lack of resources for individuals, with marginalized identities. You know, I didn't have a space where I could go and say, I, this thing happened to me and I don't know how to, process what it means, I had to just live with it. And I had to deal with what it meant to hate myself for it, even though it wasn't something I controlled, I thought it was. And this is one of the problems with not just male victimization sexually, but also queer male victimization. And I, I would you know, talk more about that. But to answer your question, for me, art was essential, again, because it helped me see myself. Video was essential. Um, running, um, was very important too, because in absence of being able to get psychotropic pharmaceuticals or to be engaged in talk therapy, running was a great uh, stand-in. And so um, for me, these were a lot of improvised tools. So engaging in nature, um, seeking communion in nature. And I think that kind of parallels running as well in certain ways. Uh, and then writing. Writing was also important. Writing paralleled art in terms of how dangerous it could feel sometimes, but it also was really essential. And then, yeah. then this is the one that always doesn't make sense, but I think still makes sense. And that is what is the thing that really helps is helping others, helping others understand themselves is it really has helped me see the peace that I can live with and being who I am, despite what I've seen. Yeah. Well, something really stood out to me as you were speaking um, of just, you know, as you're working with all sorts of people who have experienced harm with marginalized communities, with non-marginalized communities, whatever it might be, the ability to, to see yourself in the people that you were helping, in the people that you were videoing is something that's really interesting. I think, I mean, it's so common. Most people in these fields of work, of advocacy, prosecution, law enforcement, whatever it might be, tend to come at it because of a lived experience, right? and and use that as a way to kind of make sense to give back to help however it is and you just had like this really unique way of doing that and i think it's really beautiful because it was really helping others and in a way creating a system of support even if the people you were filming didn't realize that they were creating that with you yes and so that's that was really great thank you for saying that i i think about um wanting to create a space where it is restorative opportunity, where it is a power, it's a moment of empowerment, mm -hmm. where um, everything around you can slip away and a conversation can occur in a manner that will be used to benefit many 
And uh, that's what I so, so adore and so appreciate about the opportunity to do the work that I do. And that is really to try to apply, um, again, not just an ethical framework, but um, a trauma-informed approach so that um, it can continue to be something, even if you're not aware of what it is just yet. Yeah. Well, and I think that you, just from my experience, do a tremendous job. I remember after our day of filming, you all left and I thought like, oh, I'm going to go see friends and I'm going to go, you know, go have a cocktail with my girlfriends. And I went out for like one cocktail. I was like, I need to go home right now. I was so just like in a beautiful way, exhausted. And I just needed like quietness. I needed my music. And it was a really like beautiful moment for me. And yes, I was exhausted, but in a release type of way, in a really profound way. And that was really to credit you and the environment you create. Thank you. That that makes it all worth it, believe me. Yes. And that's the thing is like we do, you know, all of this work to try and like support others. And one of the things that I'm really excited for you right now is that you're flipping the lens. Literally right now, we have flipped the lens. You are not behind it. You are in front of it. And um, you and I've had conversations about that, but what is that like? And how have you decided to come from behind the camera to in front of it? Thank you. It's been an interesting journey and it's not even one that I ever think I could have seen for myself. Um, in a lot of ways, it has to do with the fact that when I was beginning to re-engage with video in a more purposeful manner and more um, mission-based issue, mission-informed issue-based video, um, I didn't think my story was worthy of being told. And a lot of it had to do with the self-blame that I still felt. I didn't hadn't had the opportunity to realize that what happened to me when I was 19 was very much forcible rape. It was, it was not just what happens to gay boys, right? You didn't deserve it. And I hadn't had the chance to really even process that what happened to me when I was three how confusing that was um because the thing about it is that for being a boy if you're not able to reconcile what happened with you and what society expects of you it silences you um and so for me that took a lot to to realize that even if it's a boy who's slightly older than me that's not an excuse it's just a way to make it harder to understand. And also, I wasn't as a boy ever included in the images that were used to educate against sexual violence. You know, if mm -hmm. you go back, if you look at the court materials, if you look at a lot of the materials that still exist about sending kids to court or being a dealing with um, victim, with victim witness assistance, right? These colorful pamphlets all depict girls and they all depict men as the abusers, right? Um, and it's confusing, like, especially as a gay man who was sexually assaulted by women, it is a, it just confuses people and it really confused me. And so even for example, that, that took a long time to process. So you asked me the process of going from behind the lens to in front of the lens is I realized that video has been the what to my why for a long time. But then I realized that my why was enough to be its own what in front of the camera. Absolutely. So 
I realize that there are a lot of people out there who have gone through what I've gone through, sexual violence and histories of sexual violence, sexual abuse is endemic to the gay community and not because of any choice on our behalf, but rather because of the stigmatized nature and covert sexual abuse that we experience by virtue of de facto stigmatization within the context of our society. Uh, and so it it took a long time. And, and I think that what I also realized is that when you tell this story, you can look at it and understand and see me, at least I can now, there are a number of factors that play into my experience that impact us all. And I think once we start, great, we start looking at these different layers, it can actually serve to elucidate a number of vexing issues with which we all have had to live. Uh, and, and, and that is a big interest of mine as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's something, this, everything you say is so fascinating and I'm so grateful to have you sharing that. And, you know, like we said, getting in front of the lens, but one of the things that really stood out to me was feeling like, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm going to sum this up right, but it's something I deal with is just like, why would anybody want to hear my story? Why does my story matter? Um, It's something I still struggle with five years in. I'm like, really, you want to hear me talk? Like, I don't understand. And I mean, that comes down to that insecurity that we carry in all of those different things. And I think especially when you have childhood sexual trauma, as you and I share in common, like it just sets you up for this lifetime of dealing with those questions, those lifetime, because you're, you can never quite, at least I personally can't, can never quite make sense of what happened to me because I was three, like you were. And it's really so challenging to go, okay, that thing right there changed me, changed the trajectory of my life forever. Uh, rewired me all of these things at a very, very young age. And I'll never full, fully be able to process that for at least myself. Being made the object of another's choice before you even understood yourself or being forced outside of yourself before you understood yourself. Uh, it it really does do a number on you. And I want to take this as a moment to just to, to, to politely point something out. And that is the bit of a the reason why I'm perhaps as interested in this issue and not because I just lived it because it is as vexing as it is. And that is that the configuration of gender and childhood sexual abuse generally mirrors the non-heterosexual youth's erotic and emotional interests. And so sexual identity among gay and bisexual or non-heterosexual boys um, tends to then develop in relation to the experience as opposed to in reaction to it. And again, looking at the fact that non-heterosexual persons constitute a distinct minority as a result of um, you know, growing up in a society that does not represent their minority status really um, further predis- predisposes the individual to silence. Uh, and, Absolutely. And that, that makes sense. When you start looking at male victimization, there are a lot of misunderstandings about that, but then you layer on top of it non-heterosexuality, and then you've really made it a a much more complex situation to understand. Absolutely, 100%. Thank you for clarifying that. And I think, I mean, the, the silencing of victims is one thing. The silencing of male victims is a whole other level. The silencing of non-heterosexual male victims is a whole nother level. Like it's just, there's so much to that. Um, and I'm really excited about the work that you're doing to unpack and bring that more to light. And something I want to point out is that what we are also dealing with in male victimization that differs in when you, when you consider uh, 
what what research has shown in terms of um, reactions from females following sexual violence versus male reaction to sexual violence. And what has been shown is that a lot of cases, uh, there are internalizing behaviors that occur more on behalf of women, which is anxiety and depression, et cetera, versus externalizing behaviors that refer more to things such as problem drinking, drug usage, and ding, 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 hypersexuality. Hypersexuality is particularly confounding here because it represents both a sense-making device when the site of the crime is your body, your body becomes the sense-making device. And for men, the pressure to perform in a sexually dominant manner, and then also this hypersexuality, and then existing within a culture, um, the gay community, which valorizes uh, sexuality in a form which would be considered anathema, perhaps, to heterosexual sexual mores. And that is that being gay and having the freedom and having that opportunity for expression invites with it certain risks. And I, I don't want to sound like I'm struggling with internalized homophobia here. I want to talk about something that I think needs to be talked about. And that is that there are things that we have had stacked against us since, since before the AIDS crisis. And that includes everything up to historical notions of heterosexual configurations and Greco-Roman culture that then has some trickle-down effect the way we conceive of it here, when really that's an entirely separate issue that had nothing to do with homosexuality as we understand it today. So I just, there's a lot there that I think warrants discussion. I could go on. And you're out here. I, can, I know you can. I love it. Um, and I think that, I mean, you are starting that conversation or you are expanding that conversation. And, and, that's, I'm not, and I'm not trying to shame anyone. It's that I felt so confused and scared for so long because I didn't understand. And I think that if we can understand the forces around us, then we can perhaps get away from some of the things we've been doing in response to not understanding them. Yes, 100%. I love that. So, right. yeah, I like that. And that's, I mean, it kind of leads to like my kind of last question here. It's like, what do you want the future to look like for victims of polyvictimization within the non-heterosexual community? How do you envision that growing um, into the future? It's wonderful that males um, have been able to have their voices heard. I appreciate the fact that men are getting more uh, stage time, if you will. I appreciate that there's an awareness of these issues. Um, on a very fundamental level, I'd like to not see our identities recriminalized. We are experiencing democratic decline within our society, and many of the fears that um, animated my youth are having life breathed back into them um, through the vitriol of people in pain. Yeah, and, and um, you know, as our planet continues to suffer, so too will the humans that live upon it. And um, I think that I would hope that we could all begin to have a better way of caring for ourselves and others and, and look more towards one another as um, humans who suffer the, not the same, but I would just like to not see us recriminalized as a very basic starting point. Um, but then also, I think that there needs to be um, some work done in investing in what special resources look like for addressing issues of male victimization and then more specifically queer male victimization because 
the, the quote unquote positive pole of heterosexuality to which one can cling following their victimization if they're straight helps to separate themselves from the violence. It's in part. And so I think that when we take into consideration the unique lived experience and history of gay persons, especially I should say men, again, I'm speaking only from my lived experience here, um, it's important that we understand there are a number of different issues that have not been taken into consideration um, thus far, henceforth. Yeah. And I feel like you're beginning or just continuing this amazing path that you're on to be doing this work and getting out there on a platform that is really important to be able to shine a brighter light on these issues. So thank you. Thank you for, thank you for having the bravery for stepping behind the lens to in front of it. Like that's a big thing. So I'm really grateful. I know countless others will be as you continue this work. And also thank you for being here today. <laughs> yeah. And this has been yeah. wonderful. I'm yeah. Hopeful. Um, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just grateful to have the chance. I'm one, I'm grateful to have um, lived to tell. I'm grateful to have had the strength to grow to a point where I could be doing the work that would lead me to you and to uh, receive your grace. I'm so grateful. Well, I am very grateful and humbled. Thank you. Um, and that kind of does get us to where we want to be is I always like to try and end on a positive message because these are really challenging conversations that we have. And so I would just say, like, what would you want to say to people who are sitting in harm or who are victims and survivors that are listening today? There is meaning behind your suffering. And the meaning you make of it will be the strength that can drive you forward. Mm. Leverage and honor what it is that makes you different as a strength to overcome the unspeakable. Use your voice. We need it now more than ever. Indeed, we do. I'm actually writing part of that down. I really like there is meaning behind your suffering. Thank you for that. Um, so thank you so much for being here today, Dylan. Um, if you want to learn more about Dylan's work, you can visit Holiday Graves Media. That's H-O-L-A-D-A-Y Graves, G-R-A-V-E-S Media. And that does it for us this week. Thank you so much for being here, Dylan. Thank you, Anna. I'm so, so appreciative. Absolutely. And for listeners, if you have any questions or ideas for the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me, Anna, at standupresources.com. I'm your host, Anna, and I love to be here to share with you on the mend. Be well, be strong, and goodbye. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or feedback. We love hearing new topic ideas from listeners and watchers as well. Thank you for listening to The Mend and be well.